Fuds that you hit them with, son. It's another Fuds on Film.com podcast. Um, <laughs> hello, everybody, and welcome to the January intermission episode of the Fuds on Film podcast. I am Craig Eastman, and joining me tonight, Scott Morris. Hello. And Drew Tavendale. How do We've got a right old barrel of monkeys to talk about tonight, not least of all Mary Poppins Returns, Green Book, A Simple Favour, Bird Box, The Favourite, Roma and Bandersnatch. So without further ado, <laughs> uh, Scott, tell us a little bit about Mary Poppins Returns. Yes, Mary Poppins Returns made such an impact on me that I'd forgotten I'd seen it for a little while. Um, <laughs> so it's not looking great for this lasting legacy in the minds of viewers. Um, <laughs> That said, I've never had all that much time for the original, for I am history's worst monster. Uh, this is set, I'd guess, maybe 30 years after the terrifying events of Mary Poppins, where reality warped, the cartoon realm and Earth Prime merged, kites were flown, and Cockney accents were transmuted into whatever Dick Van Dyke was attempting. And that's the official explanation. You can look it up on the science website. So here we return to Michael Banks, now played by Ben Wishaw. He's now got three children of his own, and he's struggling to raise them after the death of his wife. He's given up his art to take a clerk's position at the bank, but even with the help of his sister Jane, played by Emily Mortimer, he's struggling to keep up repayments on the family home. To that end, Colin Firth's William Weatherall Wilkins, the outwardly pleasant but secretly evil bank manager, differentiated from modern bank managers by still keeping up a not evil pretense, uh, gives the family a week to either make payment or find their father's certificate of shares in the bank as collateral. In the midst of this crisis, Emily 420 Blazit Blunts, Mary Poppins, <laughs> uh, returns to look after the bank's children, both young and old, team up with Lynn Manuel Miranda's Jack, an apprentice to Bert in the both the magic lamp lighting and accent senses. Uh, I don't think there's much value in recapping events further to say, than to say that Mary Poppins-esque things occur as the family try various measures to beat the clock and save their home. Now, I'm not really the person to come to for opinions on Mary Poppins' return, I'm not really a massive fan of anything that it's trying to do, so all I can say is that it seems to be doing everything well enough. Uh, it's bright, it's bold, it's colourful in both the production design and character senses, and the musical portions seem fine, although that said, I've plainly not found any of the songs all that memorable, what with me not remembering them and all. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's certainly open to criticisms of retreading broadly, if not exactly the same path that the original trod, but I suppose reboot quills are enough of a thing these days that I can't oppose it on ideological grounds. All I can say that, given I'm as far from the target audience as it's possible to get, it was charming and funny enough to keep me entertained for the duration, but I will most likely never think of it again. Um, <laughs> yes, if you're the sort of person that liked Mary Poppins, I'm certain you'll like Mary Poppins Returns. Uh, it's doing everything well enough that it's trying out to do and yeah if that's the sort of thing you like then this is the sort of thing you like <laughs> I, I have a small person in the house who's five years old who will confirm that if you're five years old and small, although not necessarily <laughs> small's, small's not a qualifier really, if you're five you'll really really <laughs> like it, judging, judging by her response when she came home the other day mm. and breathlessly spent ten minutes <clears> trying to explain to me what I think I decoded as is there a scene where they're in a bath and Mary Poppins shrinks them and they go down a plug hole and into the sea? Yes, it, it yes. defies most attempts at a conventional recap when they spend about 15 minutes inside a crockery pot. <laughs> um. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, Mary Poppins. <laughs> I'm going to spend 15 minutes inside a crockery pot, mother... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> <laughs> That's Poppins. <laughs> cool. There you are. 
Is that all we've got to say about Mary Poppins? <laughs> That's all I've got to say about it. Yeah. Oh, cool. No one else has seen it. Um, in that case, then, Drew, prime us on Green Book. Okay. Uh, let's begin with the title here, as it's important and, I think, pretty much unknown in this country. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, I further suspect similarly largely unknown amongst those in the United States with the same general skin colour as ourselves. The Green Book was a guidebook for black citizens who wanted to travel around the US South during the Jim Crow era, informing them of motels, hotels and restaurants where their skin colour would be accepted and also where it would not, to aid in the general goal of safe travel. (laughs) Safer travel. (laughs) Less dangerous travel rather than safe, I think. Very much an exercise in risk mitigation rather than, yeah. (laughs) Exercise in relativity here. I'm glad you bring it up, Drew, because because I too only discovered this three days ago when I watched the film and read some trivia and went, oh, that's an actual thing. Yes. <laughs> wow. That's just a guidebook of here's where you can stay and here's where you're less likely to be lynched. Hmm. Lovely place. And it, it is into this despicable setting that director Peter Farrelly takes us. Yes, Farrelly. As in one of the brothers Farrelly who brought us There's Something About Mary. That Farrelly. Um, <laughs> as he delivers this true story of racist bouncer, odd job man, sometime mob thug Frank Anthony Vallelonga, Vigo Mortensen, and his employment by, and however unlikely, subsequent friendship with the black polymath and musician Dr. Don Shirley, played by Maharshala Ali. Manhattan resident Shirley has arranged a series of concerts throughout the South and, having made inquiries within New York City, has identified Vallelonga, more widely known as Tony Lip, as the ideal driver come bodyguard to transport and protect him on his tour. Tony's racism is almost cartoonish at first, being of the I can't touch that, I'll get black cooties type in the beginning. But he's encouraged by his wife, Dolores, Linda Cardellini, to take the job. Well, because, you know, she's not quite so racist and it pays well and it's honest work. As they travel, a friendship forms as Tony tries to educate Dr Shirley about the joys of Kentucky Fried Chicken, Little Richard and Chubby Checker. And the doc tries to educate Tony about... Well, (laughs) mostly he just tries to educate Tony... (laughs) It's a pretty odd friendship, to be sure, with the quiet and reserved Don Shirley seemingly very much at odds with the garrulous Tony, whose mouth never seems to stop moving, either to talk or to eat or to Shirley's distaste, both. <laughs> but both actors are on top form and the friendship doesn't feel forced or unnatural. And while the film does follow a well-trodden path, it's this journey that counts and the shocking and horrible moments have more impact when we've had so much fun with the two, with the two travellers in between. Now, I talked briefly about Green Book in our year-end podcast a few weeks ago and I said that I very much liked it. Having had some further time to reflect on it, I'm less certain of that. It's certainly entertaining, of that there is no doubt, but I'm not sure I could actually call it good. I also referred to it as being like driving Miss Daisy with barbs. A statement I largely stand by, but it's difficult to consider it as much more than a reverse driving Miss Daisy, albeit with a more believable, and not just because it's based on a true story, blossoming of friendship and respect between the two protagonists. The racism and disrespect in the US South of this era, uh, the film set in 1962 by the way, is breathtaking, both in its nature and degree and with the impunity with which it is meted out by people from every social level, and is no less affecting for its repeated depiction. But the problem with Green Book is one shared by other relatively recent films dealing with a similar time and place. 
for example, the help in Hidden Figures, which may shock the audience, but largely allow it to feel good by the end and perhaps collectively think, my, my, how awful, but isn't it good that all of that ghastly business is behind us now? Hmm. All of these crowd-pleasers conspicuously lack the edge of work like, say, Sorry to Bother You, which give lie to the idea that we're in any way living in a post-racial society. With all of that said, I do still recommend Green Book as a piece of entertainment, with the chemistry between Mortensen and Ali being hugely watchable. It's not often we see Mortensen's goofy side, and its juxtaposition with Ali's refined, composed and erudite portrayal of Dr Shirley that leads to plenty of laughs. And these laughs are perhaps the sugar that helps the medicine go down, as, while it may have less relevance or, at least, less contemporary insight than other works... Its chronicling of the shameful time and its shameful behaviours is of vital importance. Racism isn't going to be treated by pretending it didn't or doesn't exist. And I'll also add in more than a handful of praise for Betsy Hyman's costume designs and Sean Porter's photography. It really is a lovely looking film. It's pretty good musically too. Hmm. I think I do like this film actually. (laughs) As you were. Or, well, I suppose as I was. <laughs> For my money, I think this is really yes, it's enjoyable. But at the end of the day, it's a cookie cutter racial tension drama. That if this had, if this had surfaced four or five years ago, I don't think it would necessarily have made it onto too many shortlists. And I think that the remedial nature of its core message of interracial tolerance sure. feels sadly necessary. Um, yes, we've taken a step backwards. This yes, more relevant. I don't. Well, I don't know that it has. In my heart of hearts, I know that this is just a dead cat bounce on the part of you know a, a dying generation of bigots who will soon leave us to um, a planet that we can treat with a bit and you know and a society that we can treat on the whole with a bit more dignity. But it's uh, it does often feel like we're on the downside of a slide right now. Now. Um, and I think that I think this movie speaks more the fact that this movie is achieving what it is achieving at the mo- moment speaks more to that than it necessarily does the craft of the filmmakers involved uh, what I will say is that Peter Farley well his direction I don't I don't think I, it does enough to do, to avoid description as being workmanlike, but I don't really see it as particularly inspired either. But what I do appreciate about it is seeing a comic director taking the step that so many comic actors do and engaging with something outside of their immediate comfort zone. And I certainly wouldn't object to seeing him trying more material in that vein. I just don't see this as the awards vehicle it seems to have become. So I was, I, yeah, I guess I was a little bit disappointed by it, but then again, I'm even more disappointed in the set of social circumstances that has <laughs> artificially inflated its current market value. So it's a it's a decent pick for, for a quiet night in, um, but yeah. I don't necessarily know that it's any more than that. I think the most shocking thing about this movie is the revelation of the existence of this green book, which, as we say, I think probably came as news to at least two of the three of us. I don't know if you were familiar with it before, Scott, but I certainly wasn't. Um, yeah, not hugely. I, I, I have. Was something nagging at me that I'd, I'd heard it mentioned in possibly passing. maybe yeah. in maybe was it in finger figures maybe I can't I can't yeah. remember something nagged at me but certainly it wasn't you know forefront yeah. of my uh, my knowledge for but any I think I think you hit the nail on the head Drew I think at, at no point in history will we not need racial dramas to remind us of the terrible, terrible things we've done. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right, Drew, that I don't think we ever need another racial drama that neuters itself by ending in a load of backslapping and hugging because yeah. that's not the outcome we've achieved so far. Yeah. So I'm not sure what it is this is trying to say. 
but there's a lot to there's a lot to enjoy in the performances. I think as the friendship develops on the road, uh, I, I get it's easy to imagine this film having gone straight down the pan or straight to video if it had not been for the chemistry of those central performances. Yeah, or maybe not straight to video, but I don't think it would have had as wide a release and as as much praise as it had were it not for uh, Mahershala Ali and Viggo Mortensen. But you know that the Italian American accent and the cursing. As funny as it may be, like I can't tell you how happy I was when he was trying to wipe the inside of the car windscreen and just said, "Yeah, your mother's ass." <laughs> um, I'll never, I'll never get, I'll never get tired of hearing that sort of that sort of cursing because there's just something about that accent and uh, and that that use of language, that casual use of <laughs> casual use of derogatory language, which always which always gives me a chuckle. But I don't, I don't think it's enough to fuel an entire an entire film mm-hmm. at two hours and ten minutes long. So yeah, it's. Um, it, it, it was a nice diversion, but I'm not sure it's as worthy as it might first appear on surface. Yeah, it's pretty much at times like this, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm just some clown with a mic, and I can only just need to say that I quite enjoyed this film. I thought it was funny in places, and not have to deal with any more uh, yeah. social commentary than, than I, because I yeah. it really doesn't do a very good job of a lot of it. I mean, it, it's a, a film that is literally titled around this artefact of horrendous systemic racism, and your central character is a white guy. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, you can see what it's trying to do. As you say, it's remedial level. It's trying to take white audiences along with a lie to go. Ooh, remember, this is bad, by the way. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. come on, remember I mean, not to do this. I, I'd let it away with that. Where this made in the sixties, yeah. but I mean, I don't think just now we need to go back to first principles to prove that racism is bad. Exactly. And like you say, the, the backslapping of the end is just in, in no way justified by the facts on the ground in space year twenty nineteen. <laughs> doesn't yeah. doesn't quite comport itself. Um, uh, as I say, I, I enjoyed it very much, but yeah, there's it's a bit flyaway, and I was expecting perhaps more given the the, the rep that it's garnered of late. Yeah, I was going to say something about the ending of it. And- uh, but I better not in case anybody would spoil it for anyone. But there is a point. There is a point seconds from the end at which it could have gone an entirely different way. Yeah. There's a point at which a group of characters pause and say nothing, and you're not entirely sure what's going to happen next. And you think, oh, this could be interesting. And then, and then, no, it's not. <laughs> but there you go. It is a yeah. film that got made and it passes passes a couple of hours reasonably well. But yes, unfortunately, another one you have to start breaking out the uh, separate your art from your artist and all that stuff because of the oh god. I mean, yeah. you don't even want to get into it. But I mean, it's a, it's a little bit annoying that um, I mean, it's not even really up for debate whether this is accurate or not. That it just simply isn't from what <laughs> the, the uh, Don Shirley's relations are saying and and this the screenwriter. Tweeting Muslim, support of anti-Muslim Trumpian nonsense, and yeah. I don't. I think Viggo Mortensen got it particularly hard. I mean, if a, I think if we're going to discuss a particular word, and I'm sure you can guess what yes. we're referring to, yes. um, and talking about how use of it has gone over time, it doesn't seem that it's that bad a thing to actually say the word. No, it's not like he was trying to punish anyone. I, a bit weird. I could immediately envisage the argument that was taking place. And I'm, I, I haven't read the interview or whatever the, the the piece was that he was he was speaking in. But yes, as I understand it, a debate around that thing, that kind of thing. You know, surrounding a film which deals explicitly with that kind of thing, I don't think it's verboten for a white person to say that word in the right context. Yeah, context yeah. is key. Is it yes, always? exactly. And I'm not aware of what the context was, but I can I can yeah. guess, and I would suspect that it's perhaps a little bit overblown. And <laughs> Mortensen's got a 
fucked end of a stick there. Seemed that way to me. Certainly, I'll, I'll give Farley a bit less credit for recent <laughs> revelations of his habit of displaying his penis as a joke to women. It's like, um, yeah, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> Yes. So, exactly. so for, for for that and every other offence, you can uh, you can make your own mind up of those, those people's subsequent apologies because they have all apologised. for thing, it is enough. The thing um, is, and I'm and I'm not using being like a 15 year old as a get out of jail free card at the time, but I remember at the time hearing about those stuff at like a, on a like a set report in Empire magazine or something, and laughing along with it, and it was all very jovial. And when you think about it now, it's so blatantly obvious. You 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 can't do that. If I did that to anyone anywhere, I'd get arrested. And there's a there's a reason why that would happen. <laughs> That's just insane. But yeah, yeah, but one of those. All that notwithstanding, as I say, I watched it for what two hours and enjoyed it quite a lot. So yeah, as you say, an easy watch, um, something to stick on of, a, of an evening. But uh, yeah, awards fodder. I yeah. can't. Uh, no, that seems strange to me. But it's uh, and I, I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily say go and spend twelve quid to go and see it in the cinema. Mm. No, yeah. three ninety nine on rental will do nicely. <laughs> Um, and with that, then, uh, we should probably proceed to a simple favour, Scott. Anna Kendrick's Stephanie Smothers cuts a lonely figure, devoted to raising her child after the death of her husband, filling her time with volunteering and recording her YouTube mummy blog series. I can't recall offhand if her home had a white picket fence, but that's very much the archetype she's drawn from. Meeting through their child's friendship, Blake Lively's Emily Nelson is a very different character. A PR executive at a fashion firm, she's all sharpshoots. Sharp wits, sharp tongue, and sharp gin and tonics. Are gin and tonics sharp? I don't drink them, but it makes for a better sentence, so let's go with that. <laughs> While some observers think that Stephanie is being used as an unpaid nanny service, she seems happy enough with the attention and trust that Emily shows her, so who are we to judge? Things kick off in earnest when Emily asks Stephanie to look after her kid for a few days while she attends to a work matter. Her husband, Sean, Henry Golding, having been called to London to care for a sick family member. Trouble is, she doesn't return, prompting an investigation that will unravel the past lives and characters of both Emily and Stephanie. Comparisons with Gone Girl are inevitable and entirely justified as this treads a very similar path and similar mix of multi-twist thriller and dark comedy. A simple favour, as you'd perhaps expect from this cast and director Paul Feig, uh, seems to be weighted a little more in favour of the comedy. Well, at least it seems to be, uh, but especially as it heads into the last hour or so when the revelations come thicker, faster and ever-increasingly far-fetched, it seems like they've forgotten to put any action comedy in. Perhaps the attempt was to rely on the inherent situational daftness of the plot to provide a few meta-laughs, but it doesn't work all that well. By the end, it's more of a series of mad lives than a narrative, and all the more disappointing after the first half that's often intriguing and pretty funny, uh, with some highly commendable dialogue. Uh, the longer it goes, the more it lost me, I'm afraid to say, and in the end, it's squandering the promise and hard work of a talented cast and production team I have no other issue with, bar the script. Sadly, that's quite a major issue. While my attention wandered all over the place by the end, there's enough good work done in the opening stretch to allow me to give it a guarded recommendation when it appears in your catch-up service of choice, but it saddens me that I can't be as enthusiastic about it as I would have been if you'd asked me half. I don't think either you or I have anything to add to that to Drew on the basis that neither of us has seen a simple favour. <laughs> no, Scott is either spot on or entirely wrong or a mix of the two. Somewhere in the middle, yes. I, I for one go for yes. <laughs> Drew, uh, a lot of people seem to be talking about something called Bird Box. What is that? What it do? <laughs> <laughs> What it do is irritate the hell out of me <laughs> while watching it, and still a couple of hours afterwards is what it do. 
Cool. <laughs> uh, do you want to give us just an initial impression of Bird Box then? Have I not just done that? Yeah, okay, <laughs> cool. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Can you imagine the state of a small box that contained some uh, baseball box that contained some birds and the state of the bottom of that box after 48 hours? Have you been feeding the birds consistently throughout that period? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, um, I can, yes. So so if you picture that box, that is largely the film. Cool. <laughs> um, in which instance then, Scott, straight back to you. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I'd ever really given any thought to like the major studios' various sub-brands for different types of movie, but with what Netflix is doing lately, I'm starting to see some sense in it, because when you see Netflix at the start of a film these days, it is a total dice roll on the style <laughs> and the quality that you land on. <laughs> um, I suppose that was ever the case, but with Netflix in particular, having its name attached as either distributor or producer for some of either the most enjoyable or interesting films <laughs> of last year, or the worst. Could be Roma, could be the Cloverfield Paradox. <laughs> Exactly. Ooh. It's it's got the company the strangest weird brand non identity. It's very strange. Um, I think their their hit ratio with bizarrely enough TV series or series seems to be better than their hit rate for movies at the moment. But yes, we'll we'll talk about that in a bit. Sorry. So to that end, you can add Bird Box to the Reckoning Sheet, a horror film starring Sandra Bullock, which may perhaps be all the review necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, an unexplained malady quickly takes hold of the world we come later to understand somehow transmitted through sight which causes people to commit suicide as swiftly as possible causing all manner of inconvenience escaping the chaos through blind luck oh, uh, do you see what I did there uh, Bullock's <laughs> oh heavily pregnant that's the best they're going to get uh, Bullock's <laughs> heavily pregnant Mallory winds up sheltering the home of John Malkovich's splendidly irritable Douglas alongside a variety of characters ranging from person I can barely remember to other person that made no impact on me as they try and figure out what's going on and how they can survive it all this is intercut with a Mallory of five years hence preparing for and undertaking a dangerous river journey with two kids to a supposed safe haven as a desperate last gambit for survival which must be made blindfolded to prevent whatever probably demonic forces causing this to infect them. So, it's basically landing somewhere between a quiet place and a happening, both of which we hold in rather low regard, and this is perhaps worse than either of them. Oh no! Uh, there is such a huge believability hurdle to get over with this infection, or whatever you want to call it, that I just can't bring myself to make the effort. It's playing the not-explaining-anything card in an attempt to create an air of mystery, but there's just nothing in the rest of the film to provide any interest, unlike, say, Pontypool, which could be open to the same criticism, mm. but is just a far more interestingly executed film. Uh, it's I suppose well enough acted and shot, but it's, there's nothing mm. being said or done that is anything remotely interesting or that hasn't been done a million times before, bar, barring perhaps a couple of blindfolded camera shots, which are done infrequently enough that they seem silly rather than a way to empathise with anyone's predicament. So there's probably a, a really interesting VR game in here somewhere, but not, sadly, a film. Add to this a wildly misjudged, insensitive development regarding this affliction's effect on the mentally ill, and it's hard to find much to recommend at all in here. So, I won't. <laughs> Make best endeavours <laughs> to avoid. So, two things. First of all, thank you for using the word malady, a word I had largely <laughs> forgotten about, but I appreciate you using in this context. <laughs> and thank you for mentioning Pontypool and reminding me of that witch some scant 10 years after you guys both recommended it I think um, I finally got round to watching in the middle of last year and that is a good film that you should probably watch instead of this yes cool. this, this is not a good film it's just, what is going on with this well, first of all terrible sound design apparently the, the, this strange thing these demons or whatever it is is represented largely by wishiness yes that's it Wishiness. That sounds okay. 
Correct. Um, <laughs> it doesn't even seem to know what these things are. I mean, it doesn't go quite as it far as something. It doesn't. No. Yeah, something like no as idea. far as uh, um, a quiet place or a signs and show you them. But I kind of, since it seems to have no idea of what they were, I would have liked to have seen something. I guess the closest you get is that Tom Hollander's got some pictures, but um, they all look completely disparate anyway, so you're never sure it's meant to be a representation or an imagining. But, and right at the beginning too, the idea seems to be that whatever these people see, it kind of quite quickly drives them insane and they, they latch onto some sort of sad memory or something. And commit suicide, which is the whole thing. If, if you look at these things, you kill yourself. That's the premise of them. Mm. And okay, so it seems to be entirely internal at the beginning of the film and in the middle of the film and almost right to the end of the film. Then at the end of the film, they decide that actually, no, it's external. They somehow know things about the people and that other people can hear it too. Like, well, make up your mind. That seems Which that, is it? That sounds necessary. There's also the idea of these people supposed to be blindfolded isn't entirely poorly um, conveyed because mm. every single person apart from a couple of bits where the plot demands that they trip over something they move exactly like you mm. would imagine somebody yeah. who could see out the bottom of their blindfold moved <laughs> exactly <laughs> like that up to including navigating rapids because apparently yes. that's easy enough to do blindfold fine yeah. okay, go over it I mean there's a bit too where you see Sandra but it comes on the short one point and she runs runs straight towards this bush but manages to stop and right before she would crash into it and go around them like yeah that's not really how blindfold things work but okay um <laughs> i can't even walk slowly at night from my bedroom to the bathroom without walking into something so <laughs> how people can run at full pelt <laughs> yeah it's just like, beyond me <laughs> yeah it's not believable the way they move and then i don't know it also it's stupid what surprised yeah. me most about this film is that uh, apparently this was a book beforehand, which means that someone actually wrote this down. Because what you're saying is right, entirely, it doesn't seem to have any sort of idea of what its internal logic is, and it doesn't seem to have been thought through, but surely if you're going to write a book about something, you must have had some idea about it. I mean, has it just been ignored for this adaptation, or or what? It's it's weird. One wonders whether or not the film is played fast and loose with the premise of the book. Uh, It's it's played fast and loose with something. Um, (laughs) And yeah, also there's there are moments too where, uh, well, first of all, there's not enough John Malkovich. There needs to be no. considerably more John Malkovich, crotchety yeah. John Malkovich at that. Uh, but well, a- knowing, knowing that Malkovich plays a, a cranky character called Douglas is the only <laughs> the only thing that I've heard about this movie that has any chance whatsoever <laughs> yes. convincing me to watch it, and it's still not going to work. Yeah, there's there's no like internal logic to this film at all. And things are just convenient too. It's just all to do with plot conveniences. There's a moment where Sandra Bullock and the children lose their blankets and food. And then literally within 30 seconds, yeah. um, she finds more blankets and food. Well, that wasn't really an issue then, was it? Oh, <laughs> stakes, oh. are, stakes are high. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's like things too. It was just there's the whole lack of logic was bothering me too. It seems like they've been inside this house near the beginning for going to be weeks as they're talking about food running short, right? Mm. And only at that point did they realise there were security cameras and they could use them. Yeah. <laughs> it's just such an artless way to do it. It's like, all you need is one wee change in that, that portion, where instead of a um, character apparently suddenly realising in his own house, oh yeah, I've got these security cameras, <laughs> you could have said, perhaps it's time to revisit this idea of daring to look at the security cameras. 
one change would be it'd make that entirely sensible, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then you have how long can birds survive without food? Because apparently forever. <laughs> because they find these birds in a supermarket and they're alive after presumably weeks because at this point they're running out of food they've had somebody come to the door who said i'm only now um coming out because i'm so short of food i'm worried that i'm going to die and my baby's going to die hmm. <laughs> but the birds are still alive maybe so, they were really fat birds and that's so easy to just like go down this travel of nitpicking but really because the film doesn't have anything else to keep was, you distracted from I, that. I know I was going to say look let's cut this short because we always end up doing this we end up spending the most amount of time on the films picking holes in the films <laughs> that deserve the attention the least so don't watch Bird Box at the end of the day it's got Sandra Bullock in it and I'm sick to the back teeth of Sandra Bullock she actively irritates me now I don't rate her at all as an actress No, I, I, I saw the premonition and I remember nothing about it even though I think I wrote the review for it for the website way back in the day i can't remember i think i did or scott did you write that one i don't know i, I don't even remember the, that film the <laughs> point is i remember nothing about it yet i am still scarred by it so no thank you end of i remember the name of that though the one yes. i want to say about um the film for going is no so sandra book's a big i've issue, called right? time on it no no no, no. scott the favorite <laughs> stop talking about bird box i'm f- bored of it now <laughs> Send it to me later, I'll splice it in. <laughs> the favourite. Okay. God right. damn it. Okay, right, I'll keep this short for you, since you don't like people talking. Right. <laughs> in this, I assume, 100% historically accurate to documentary of Queen Anne's Court from the lobster director Yorgos Lathamos, we examined the most trusted courtiers of Olivia Colman's Queen Anne, initially Rachel Wise's Sarah Churchill, the Duchess of Marlborough, essentially ruling on a disinterested and, well, let's politely say mercurial Anne's behalf. <laughs> Sarah's husband James effectively controls the army, so they're quite the power couple, although what he'd make of her affair with the Queen is, well, not remotely important, other than as a way to introduce this fact into the review. Seamless, I am quite the master of slowly tearing. Move over, Stephen King. Into this milieu of politicking between Churchill, Anne, and the leaders of the Tories and the Whigs over the never-ending wars with other European powers steps Emma Stone's Abigail Hill, a younger cousin of Sarah's who's fallen on hard times. Initially employed as a scullery maid, she soon proves her worth and is raised to Sadie's Lady of the Bedchamber. However, she aims to raise herself higher and supplant Sarah and sets about doing so, which is doing scant service to about 90 minutes of exceptional scheming, counter-scheming and character work, but I think that's best for you to discover, dear listener. And in truth, I don't really have all that much else to say about the favourite other than to recommend it as highly as I possibly can. It's a fascinating narrative with fascinating characters tied together with Yorgos Lathamothy's fascinating quirkiness that I appreciated from The Lobster even if I wasn't so taken with that film overall. And most importantly, every plaudit that Colman, Wise and Stone have been receiving for this film is entirely deserved. Three superb performances that was an absolute pleasure to watch and about a million miles away from the traditionally stuffy and obnoxious period dramas that this sort of thing would usually entail. And it's just as frequently raw and emotional as it is funny. Now, if this isn't at or near the top of my films of 2019 list, then we'll have a hell of a year ahead of us. I don't really have anything else to say about it other than to highly recommend everyone watch it immediately. It's absolutely fantastic. There, that efficient enough for you? That is efficient. Well done. Uh, Okay then, Roma. As a pitch, based on the director's own experiences, is an immediate turn-off for me as I am repelled by the egotistical notion that of all the 7 billion people on Earth whose story you might use your ultra-privileged position to bring to your attention, you felt the most worthy was... 
You? I'm also not. I'm also not a huge fan of Alfonso Cuarón, having grown slightly more contemptuous over time of his reliance on technical camera trickery and forced pseudo profundity in the likes of Children of Men and Gravity. Who's in Gravity again? Uh, though I profess to having never watched Itu Mama Tambien or Harry Potter and the Naughty Step What's It for that matter. Therefore, with some trepidation and nought else to do of that particular night, I fired up Netflix and battened down the hatches for two hours and 15 minutes of pretentious arsehouse flannel before reuniting myself with the sweet embrace of bed. Except uh, I was pretty much wrong in my entire supposition as to what Roma is, or indeed sets out to achieve. Yes, the ten-year-old Alfonso is present in some form in this movie, uh, but the director sidelines himself with admirable restraint in a tale that focuses instead on his family's housemaid Cleo as she tended to the Quaron's home against the backdrop of social and political change in Mexico City circa 1971. The film spans about a year, during which time both Cleo and the family experience fundamental changes to the fabric of their being, chief among them Cleo's pregnancy, and, to a lesser degree, the departure of the household patriarch who abandons his wife and four children for a younger woman. So far, so Ken Loach. However, there's a great deal which sets Roma apart, most immediately obvious amongst those things, and gratifying being the cinematography for which Quaron is also responsible on this occasion. Presented in beautifully graded black and white, Roma wastes no time in establishing a very definite sense of place and time, and every single shot is perfectly framed to within a pixel of its life. Despite its humble aspirations and beautifully mundane setting, this is up there with Blade Runner or Lawrence of Arabia as one of those films where you could capture a still at pretty much any moment and be absolutely justified in mounting it and hanging it on a wall. Even when that's uh, cleaning up dog Yes, even when it's, even <laughs> when it's scraping up dog um, there's a lot of dog in this movie, Scott. <laughs> then, as the movie bedded in, I came to appreciate that the cinematography is kept pace by the characterisation, and that my initial feelings about the treatment of Cleo by the adults in the house, that she seems a victim of poverty and class, were at least partly misplaced. Quaron so clearly has such unending affection for his nanny that my reservations around the whole based on director blah blah thing were roundly binned, and I came to realise that he was playing to just about every strength his privileged position afforded him in telling this story of a quietly unassumingly, galactically noble woman, and not playing in the wise or manipulative sense, but rather a disarmingly affectionate one. That is not to say that Roma is a love-in or a laugh-fest, as their compassion for Cleo comes at a dramatic price. There are moments in the movie, particularly on the back nine, where it can be downright punishing, and at least two of those moments left me moved to tears. I don't think I've had this particular emotional experience before in a film. Brett Goldstein on his excellent films to be buried with podcast recently likened it to feeling guilty at intruding on a private moment of grief, which pretty much sums up the most devastating scene in question. Likewise, Quanron deploys his trademark technical trickery in a much more reserved and transparent way here, and in particular a scene taking place at the beach later in the movie uses it to leverage a moment of profound emotional catharsis for Cleo, a technological achievement you absolutely never have to worry about applying to gravity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ultimately, I was absolutely humbled by Roma, and that was despite only watching it on a small screen. This is a film that begs to be seen in a cinema, and also having to stop for half an hour at the 45-minute mark while I enacted an emergency repair on the impeller assembly of our overworked dishwasher. (laughs) 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 Well, the nature of it means uh, means I am in no rush to see it again unless I can catch a cinema screening a year or so from now. Uh, There's a pretty good objective case to be made for Roma as the year's best-crafted piece of cinema. Uh, yes. Had this been released before we'd recorded our Best of 2018 podcast? Yes. 
Sorry to look behind the curtain, that was a little bit in advance. Uh, yep. Yeah, this would certainly have been on it, so yes, it's... I, I, I too <laughs> felt like a mug that we didn't speak about this in December. <laughs> yeah, so um, rectifying that now, and no doubt um, in our roundup next year, it is absolutely fantastic. To return to my most abused Garth Marenghi Dark Place quote, um, Quaron's one of those uh, cowardly authors that uses subtext, so what, one of the things <laughs> that I can really like about this is, while the central narrative is, you could argue, relatively straightforward, yeah. Um, it is nonetheless, you know, a beautifully crafted, but it's a beautifully beautifully crafted cork that's swirling around in a tempest of cultural attitudes and change that I am not qualified to tell you about mm-hmm. in a language of film that I am not qualified to tell you about. <laughs> <laughs> so all yeah. I can really tell you is that it's absolutely fantastic. There's lots of things to dive into with Roma that, that aren't being sort of formed into plot cudgels to beat you with, uh, like the relationship between paid employees and a family and the yep. blurred boundaries between the roles and the veins towards the male role in a family, the class standings in society and the lasting impact of government oppression that, to my understanding, in Mexico has never even had the small catharsis of proper investigation and recognition the way that they have in, for example, similar events in Argentina. The, the dirty war in Mexico seems to have gone somewhat under uh, under-analysed as opposed to mm. some of the other... Um, more totalitarian states that have had a, a little bit more light shown on it. So, uh, yeah, and uh, it's just such an intensely powerful and personal story that affects Cleo, and it's a hell of a performance from Yelitsa Paricio. Gosh, yes. Um, which holds everything together. Um, it's, it's wide-ranging and it's heartbreaking and it's intimate and it's funny in it's places and it's absolutely heartbreaking in others and it's absolutely beautiful. It's as close to transcendent as the, as the medium has gotten for some time, I think, or certainly in my experience. I was listening to... Oh, no, I wasn't listening to, actually. I'll tell you what, of all things, it was one of those... Um, that The second part of that two-part series that Billy Conley has done for the BBC recently where, mm-hmm. he, where he revisits Scotland. Um, and he was way up in the north talking to a an English uh, singer-songwriter who's basically moved moved up there to live a life as almost a vagabond kind of on the road musician and he he said something that applies to this i think i think it speaks to the i think it speaks to the elegance and the depth that Quaron brings in this film to seemingly sort of trivial events and he was speaking about songwriting and he was talking about the real craft of songwriting and what makes a great songwriter and he 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 spoke he spoke about how frequently the charts and how often... And what percentage of songs in the charts are about being in love or having your heart broken? As mm. though this is the sort of thing that happens five or six times yeah. a day to us. <laughs> he said a, a great songwriter will take something mundane like eating an apple and bring some sort of profound expression to yeah. that through the medium <laughs> of music. And it's that kind of expression that Quaron has brought to small... In, in, a, in a real sense trivial but in, and also in a real sense absolutely profound uh, moments that he's that he's he's oh, dearie me he's elevated in this film to as much much more than so much more than the sum of its parts and just the most genuinely moving and affected I've been by a film in, in some time which is not to say that I uh, I, I expelled as much volume of tears as I did bizarrely in something like Coco. It's not that. It's just. It's just that it's a profoundly human film, and I felt connected to the lead character in a much more fundamental way than I have done 
any other character in a film that I can remember, certainly in recent memory. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this should be winning all of the things. And if we talk about <laughs> if we if we talk about the quality of Netflix's output and variable in films, this is this is the jewel in Netflix uh, crown right now in terms of its film output. Certainly, it's it's up there with the best. And oh, what would I? I did have oh yes, if I did have one, if I did have one warning, if I did have <laughs> if I did one have one criticism, if for any reason you're allergic to panning um, <laughs> there's a lot of panning in this film you'll you'll understand if and when you watch it but um bizarrely enough i i um yeah i wish i hadn't actually seen it in the comfort of my home i really wish i'd been able to see this at a, a screening at a local cinema and i would i would urge you to do that even if you're a netflix subscriber i would urge you to pay 12 quid to go and see it at a cinema instead Quite remarkable. Uh, which leaves us with Bandersnatch then, Scott. Right, okay. Um, last up, another return to Netflix. Bandersnatch is a, a, a fourth wall smashing, lampshade hanging, death defying, tropifying, choose your own full motion video game slice of interactive fiction that is in the main not really a film, so is of questionable value discussing in this format. So if you want to leave at this point, I'll, you're more than welcome to do so. But if you do have Netflix, it's worth spending a couple of hours with Bandersnatch, and I say that as someone who thinks Black Mirror is, in general, the most perplexingly well-received slab of media over the past decade. Mm-hmm. Um, so this feature-length uh, adaptation, or feature-length outing, I guess, is in terms of overarching narrative about a young programmer with some mental health issues trying to finish a video game on a tight deadline adapting a cult classic choose-your-own-adventure novel, the creation of which drove its author insane, and I'm sure you can see where this is heading. Uh, the gimmick here is that you can, at various points, with various consequences, make choices in the life of Fionn Whitehead's Stefan Butler and how he interacts with his father, Craig Parkinson, uh, rock star programmer Colin Ritman, played by Will Poulter, and therapist Dr Haynes, played by Alice Lowe, amongst other more trivial selections. Now, for an achingly meta-interactive fiction like this, it's perhaps fitting that the most fun I've had with this is reading film critics flailing around trying to describe this when, to anyone who's been around (laughs) video games for the past decade or so, we can simply say, this is a telltale game, and describe it (laughs) in its entirety. (laughs) Or... If, like us greybeards, uh, they've been around since the ZX Spectrum home computing heyday in which Bandersnatch is set, it's the seventh guest, but without their irritating puzzles. Um, and just as that <laughs> did not turn out to be the future of video games, this is not the future of film, but it's a fun gimmick that's worth some of your time to play with, uh, but nothing like enough to go through the multiple times to find the quote-unquote different endings, especially as many of them seem to be different in the Mass Effect 3 kind of sense. <laughs> uh, so most of this review is not going to make a lot of sense unless you're quite okay with video game culture, I apologise. I think most of our <laughs> listeners probably will be. Yes, we're all a bunch of nerds. Right. Uh, strangely, though, the main thing that stayed with me from Bandersnatch is a similar but much less virulent form of the annoyance of the meta-narrative from Spec Ops The Line, if you'll permit the tangent. <laughs> um, that game, in a nutshell, everything that you did as a protagonist to help the people that you purport to be helping made it much, much worse, to the point that at the end you were presented with your actions by essentially an author avatar saying you could have stopped this by simply not playing the game uh, and not doing all these horrible white phosphor based things um, which is the sort of comment that's sort of clever for about 10 seconds before it falls apart in any analysis because mm. there's no way to progress uh, sorry there's no way to progress that narrative or the game in spec ops without performing these actions and while I see the artistic intent of saying you could stop the form is tied to the function right. <laughs> games are expensive and I, paid, I paid 40 quid <laughs> for this <laughs> so simply not playing is a daft waste 
of money and a silly thing for a game developer to say. And I did get a similar but slightly less explicit sense of finger-wagging from Bandersnatch, undercut entirely by the way that any option chosen to stop our protagonist's suffering leads to an immediate non-standard game over and a prompt to go back and screw him up a little bit more. Um, so turn that mirror back upon yourself, Charlie Brooker. But kudos for coming up with a film that's difficult to pirate. So I'm sure Netflix will be happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> just going back to your spec ops the line argument there Scott as well of course the logical it always baffled me that from the developers the logical conclusion of that argument is I could go one better and not buy your game yes and we'll exactly see, and we'll, we'll see we'll see how long you keep making games then how do you like food on your table oh my days so I guess the only thing I can really say in summation about Netflix which I, uh, sorry about uh, Bandersnatch which I enjoyed well enough for the two hours that I spent with it is that it is certainly not worth getting Netflix a subscription for a month by itself just to watch Bandersnatch. However, Roma most definitely is. Mm-hmm. So do that and then fiddle around with Bandersnatch after and it's uh, not not an unpleasant way to spend a couple of hours, particularly if you've got any sort of affinity for video game culture and sort of interactive choose-your-own-adventure sort of thing that this is aping if you grew up with those books like I think I'm sure we did. Um, certainly I did. I went through a few of those. It's a fun little thing to play with. It's a fun little toy, but it's more of a toy than a film. Um, mm. It's it's an interesting little side project, but yeah, uh, worth a look at, but nothing to nothing to beat down Netflix's door to get yeah. to. If Netflix want to go ahead and fund um, a series of these based on uh, Steve Jackson and even Ian Livingston's fighting fantasy books, yes. I am I am right on board with that. Thanks very much. Um, otherwise, yeah, a little bit too gimmicky for me to be paying too much attention. But the discussion that it's provoked is yeah. mildly diverting, if nothing else. It's nice to see Jeff Minter. <laughs> that's not something you often get to say. About Jesus, what well, Jeff Minter's in it? I'm I'm reasonably sure that Jeff Minter is the author that's uh, shown in flashback or in like a, a, a sort of oh, wow. archive video at one point. Um, I've not checked that, but I'm pretty sure it isn't. <laughs> is he sitting in a cupboard saying, "Don't go into a trance, boys"? <laughs> Don't go into a trance. <laughs> there's a there's, there's a, a deep callback. cut. Yeah. <laughs> Fair dues. Uh, on which note, I suppose we should probably call time on these shenanigans. Yes. Do we have any uh, feedback from uh, the Twitters? Yes. Ooh. Thanks to the Exploding Helicopter podcast that's on Twitter at Chopper Fireball, who say that, speaking about Bird Box, of course, the best part of Bird Box is John Malkovich giving us 100% undiluted John Malkovich. Yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> the end of the world is a small price in order to spend some time with his cynical, sneering, shotgun wielding drunk. Yes, uh, literally the only positive thing I could ever take away from Bird Box was had, and I really wish you would take the rest of that film away from me. Just, just leave me with a ranting John Malkovich, and I'd be happy as Larry. Anything else? Sadly, no. Oh, by good slim pickings this week. Fair dues. Well, I guess we'll be back soon enough then um, with our next episode. However, in the meantime, thank you very much for listening. If you want to get in touch, uh, I'm sure you can find us quite easily on Facebook and or Twitter. Uh, in the meantime, I was Craig Eastman. Scott was Scott. Goodbye. And a Drew was a Drew. Goodbye. Fairly well. Goodbye.